Please turn also to the book of Ephesians. We are at Ephesians chapter 5, verses 28 to 33. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 28 to 33. This also is the reading of God's holy word. We'll begin from chapter 5, verse 21 through 33. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. For in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Let me go to our God and ask for his blessings on the reading and also the preaching of his holy word. Our Lord God, you have given us your word, and your word is truth. Father, we acknowledge that you have given us words, you have given us definitions, you have given us doctrines. The world comes up with their own definitions and their own teachings and their own doctrines. Father, we pray that you would help us to be believing, trusting in your word, that your word is truth, that your ways are right. Father, we acknowledge that much grief, turmoil, Suffering and sadness is the result of sin. And Father, even, even in this area of marriage, of marital union, marital bliss, that even non-Christians forego uh, the blessings that you give to them even in this life of marital bliss and union. Father, we pray that we, your people, who believe your promises, that we would trust in you. Father, we thank you that our Lord Jesus is the one to whom we are united and this mystery indeed is great. Father, we thank you that in our union with him, we have the true hope of forgiveness and eternal life. Father, we thank you that he is the one who pays the price for our sins. He is the one who sets us free. We pray, Father, that this good news would be received, that it would be lived out by your people, that we would cherish you above everything else. We pray, Father, that your son, Jesus Christ, would be exalted and that your servant would be humbled. In Christ's name, amen. amen. <clears throat> we think about basic math. I don't want to bore you here. One plus one equals two. Now here, you're probably saying, you haven't told me anything I don't know. Okay, let's do some Christian marital math. One plus one equals what? One. There you go. One plus one equals one. So, so wait a minute. You're an idiot. How does that figure? One sinful man plus, I'm sorry, one sinful husband plus one sinful wife equals one flesh marital union. Do you get it? 
So long as we think two, no, we are two. He is separate. He is against me. No, she is not listening to me and she is against me. She is my downfall. So long as we think two, this is why there is so much divorce. And then we think about the, the, the slang dis, right? Hey, do not diss the Lord. Hey, she's dissing me. You think about the disses, dissension, disrespect, discord, dissatisfaction in marriage. This is because we're thinking two and not one. The world says you are two, your partners, and, and you're two. And God says, no, you are one. So long as you're thinking one plus one equals two in marriage. This is why there's trouble. We need to think one plus one in Christian marriage is one flesh, not two. This is how God designed it to be. This is how it ought to be. And when we think in this way, when we believe God and his word, that he has told us that we are one and not two, when we apply this to Christ and his church, Satan says, hey, Jesus has disowned you. He has deserted you. Look at your life. Look how much suffering you have. Look how shamed you are by the world. All of those things, Satan says, you've been disowned. You've been rejected. You've been shamed. You, you are you are forlorn. God has never said those things to you in Christ. He says, you are united to Christ by faith. You are one. There's a, there's a true and physical, not physical, a mystical union, but there is a true union between you and Christ, between Christ and his church. You're not disowned. You're not forsaken. That God sent his son Jesus to die on behalf of his church, his bride, the church, so that she would be pure and spotless. There is no disowning there at all. God in his word promises he has not forsaken the Christian. We must think in this way. Here, when we think about this passage, verses 28 to 33, this is what's called a chiastic structure. Chiastic structure, meaning verse 28 and verse 33 correspond to one another. Verses 29 and 30, and then verse 32 correspond to each other. Verse 31 is the heart, the center of this passage. A, quote, a direct quote from Genesis 2.24. So 28 and 33 speak about men, humans, husbands. It addresses them. Verses 29 and 30 and verse 32 speaks about the mystery of Christ in the church. So he's, he's relating this is typology. Man, husband and wife, and then Christ in the church. And then in verse 31, what we ought to understand is that the heart of it is speaking about how two become one. That the man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Here we see the truth in this passage. The essence of marriage is the loving union between husband and wife, even as the church is united to Christ. The essence of marriage is the loving union between husband and wife, even as the church is united to Christ. We'll see this in three points. First is the unity expressed between husband and wife. Second, the union between Christ and the church. And third, God's design for marital unity. First point, unity expressed between husband and wife. We have this in 28 and 33. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. In verse 33, however, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Here, we acknowledge that this whole section, 
that continues through Ephesians chapter 6, verse 9, when he finishes speaking uh, about uh, masters and slaves. Here, we, we have everything under the context of submitting to one another out of reverence to Christ. This is why he addresses wives first before he addresses husbands, submitting to one another out of reverence to Christ. Here, we cannot say that submission is only one way between husband and wife. There, there must necessarily be a submission of the husband to his wife because when he makes decisions for their family, for their marriage and for their family, his submission is, what is good for my wife? What is good for my children? He's going to make decisions. He's going to make sacrifices for them. That is, a, that is a sense of submission that he has to his family. Here we see that this submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ addresses the relationships that form the fabric of society. That this is what's important. This is what holds together our society. Healthy marriages form healthy families. Healthy families form healthy societies. Healthy families form healthy churches. You see the context of crime and theft and violence, dishonesty, and the high rates of incarceration all have to do with the breakdown of marriage and family. Here we think about the cultural context. I've mentioned it before, that uh, in the American culture, the shame and the outrage has to do with the, uh, the Holy Spirit in, in the Word of God commanding wives to submit to husbands. And in the Greek culture, uh, here... We, we think about the various cultures. And how many cultures are there where it's considered socially acceptable almost that a man would, would, have, uh, would have sexual relations outside of marriage? There's going to be many cultures throughout, throughout history and throughout the world where this is acceptable. So for the command for husbands, love your wives, this, this was the shocker to the Greeks, the first century Greeks. And, and keep in mind that the first century Greek, they believed that they were at the top. They, they, they were the pure race. And, and they were the ones who, everyone else was inferior, right? So, so for the Greeks, it's, there's only two types of people, right? Those who are Greek and those who want to be Greek. Summarizing some of the modern thought. But this is exactly how they thought. That, that this ethnocentricity was not distinct to them. In many ways, many cultures are going to be ethnocentric. It's, it's, in, it's in the gospel of Jesus Christ that we come to realize, no, there aren't more than one race. There's only one race. Acts 17 speaks about how there is one race. That is the race of Adam. And this is why in the church we can say there, there's, there's no superior and inferior within the church because there's one people of God. There's one people of God. And would not the Americans today struggle with one, one aspect of this command, and the Greeks in the first century struggle with a different aspect, is immaterial. What we have to realize is that you and I today are called to honor God and his word and to submit to him. We looked at the previous passage, Ephesians 5, 25 to 27. There we were given the high standard, husbands, men, the high standard, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. That she might be holy and without blemish. Here, we 
think about the high standard that God has given husbands. The standard is husbands love your wives sacrificially. Meaning when you love your wife, it will cost you. It must cost you something. That's what sacrificial means. It will cost you. There's certain things that you can't do. Everyone wants to be something different than what they are. So the single man wants to be married. The married man wants to be single. You know, there were advantages to being a single man. They're not all disadvantages. Meaning, on a dime, you can drop and make some plans, right, without checking with anybody. Husbands, I, I, I'm giving you a hint here. You cannot do that. You cannot do that. Hey, this friend calls you. Hey, let's go to dinner. Well, do you think it'd be wise to check with your wife? Hey, what plans do we have for dinner? You should. You should. This is part of thinking as one rather than as two. This idea of uh, a husband's love must be sacrificial. So that was uh, that he's one who gave himself up for her. The husband's love also must be a sanctifying love. His love for his own wife should influence her to be more like Christ. That he's loving her in such a way he's trying to move her a certain direction. More like Christ. Here, the standard that's given is that the husband must love his own wife as Christ loved the church. So you ask, have you loved your wife enough? Well, what do the scriptures say? Even as Christ loved the church, and in every one of us, none of us measures up. We have a high standard. We have a high goal. We see in today's passage, verses 28 to 33, you have this chiastic structure. The heart of it, the center of it, is this idea that a man leaves his father and mother and holds fast to his wife, and the two become one flesh. The two become one. If you haven't already, you must begin thinking as one, not as two. That this is for the health, for the flourishing, for the survival of your marriage, that you must think as one. Here we think about the proper practice of self-care. For some of you men, this might be news. For others, I, I'm hoping it's all review. Verse 28, it says, In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. Here, men, you ought to know yourselves. You ought to know your idiosyncrasies. If, if your neck or your head easily get cold because you're lacking hair, or whatever the reason, then when you go out on a cold day that's below zero, you would be wise that you would have a scarf and a warm hat with you. And like me, my head gets cold, then I often have an extra hat or two, right? In case that one gets lost, then I have a spare because my head gets cold. Some of you know these things. Perhaps if someone has an anaphylactic allergy, meaning you, you, you have an allergy, you eat something like peanuts or shellfish, and suddenly you stop breathing or you get hives, that uh, you would be careful to read all the ingredients on the ingredients list when you buy a product. And if someone were to give you food, hey, I got these, I got these cookies for you, oh, thank you. No, no, you would ask, hey, what went into these? And, and then if you have anaphylaxic shock to peanuts, you probably would just be suspicious about anyone anyone gives you because no one else is very careful about what touch what. And you would think someone with this allergy would be very cautious because their life 
could end in that tasty cookie. Think about if someone, a man, had a bad back. He would be careful to maintain good posture, bend, bend your knees, not your back. This idea of picking up a heavy object and then twisting like this to set something down. Don't do that. That's going to harm you. You don't have strength in that way. You think about all these things that we would make accommodations for yourself. It has to do with taking care of yourself as your own bodies. Here. None of you men would say to yourself, okay, I have this injury from the past. They would, they would, you would never say to yourself, hey, why am I not like other people? Why can't I do this? Huh? Why, well, why can't I just do what that guy did? Right? Here, this friend of mine, hey, he, he runs marathons. Why can't I just try to do that? Well, they're the bad things that could happen if someone is a couch potato and then suddenly they try to run this marathon with his friend who, who runs hours a day. It can't be done. Here, we think about how we make accommodations for ourselves. We take care of ourselves. We should. Here, do you men think the same way about caring for your wives? No one ever hated his own flesh. You know, oftentimes men will start to point out their wives, hey, you're, you're weak in this area and this area and this area. And they start to think, hey, what's wrong with her? What's wrong with her? What's wrong with you? Why does she need so much affirmation? Why can't she, my wife, be self-tending? Have you ever heard of a self-tending garden? Have you ever heard of a self-tending garden that was worth spending time in? The answer is no, because that garden would be full of weeds. There's no such thing as a self-tending woman. There's no such thing as self-raising children. This is part of uh, despising. This would be despising a wife, not lovish, loving and cherishing her. Here, we think about the reality of sinful self-destruction. Here, the scriptures reason from a way of the natural, or, or this is the proper way. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. Meaning that, hey, this is how normal, uh, uh, sane people should think. But you think about how sin is inherently stupid and foolish. Sin is self-destruction. Consider the warnings. Proverbs 6.32. Whoever commits adultery with a woman lacks understanding. He who does so destroys his own soul. Meaning he who chooses sin destroys his own soul. And it's not unique to that sin. It's every sin is destroying oneself, destroying your own soul. So here we see also in this command, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. We can say, so also he who does not love his own wife as his own body sins and destroys himself. Do you hear that? Do you understand that? If, if a man is not loving his wife as God has commanded, is not loving his wife uh, as himself, that's called self-destruction. Here we, we think about the simple matter of God's blessings upon his people. 
think in many ways, you look even at the non-Christian marriage. Is there blessing? Is there an overflow of blessing that God gives to them? That, that if they're faithful to their vows, if, they're, if they love their wife, if they love their wife sacrificially, if, if they can in such a way, if, if the wife honors her husband, is, is there a blessing that they receive from God even, even being non-Christians? You would think that there would be. How much more so is it true for Christians? And, and this is where I'm trying to hammer this nail that think as one, not as two. Think as one, not as two. I give you another analogy. For whatever reason, you are parked after midnight, your car is parked in a dark parking lot. <clears throat> Three strange men approach you in an aggressive manner. You wouldn't go to these men and say, hey, uh, my, my right arm is, uh, is strained, so, so uh, don't, don't attack me from the right side, okay? Because I can't fight you back on that side. And by the way, I kind of sprained my left ankle, so you know what? I, I can't really run either. No one would do that. Nobody would do that when they're facing an enemy about to be attacked. So also, you think about men and how we deal with our wives. Would we ever go to a stranger and start speaking ill of our own spouse? You wouldn't say this about yourself. You wouldn't, you wouldn't tell your dirk, dirtiest, darkest secrets to perfect strangers of your own. We should not do it with our wives. Here, we think also about uh, what wives are called to do. So also a woman is not to disrespect her own husband there in verse 33. And let the wife see that she respects her husband. Proverbs 14.1, the wise woman builds her house, but the foolish tears it down with her own hands. She tears it down with her hands. She tears it down with her words. An excellent wife is the crown of her husband, but she who shames him is a rottenness to his bones. Proverbs 12.4. Here, we think about this, this verse 33. He's, he's closing this section. So he, he summarizes by saying, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So there's the reminder, men, you're not two, you are one. You're going to cover her weaknesses in your love. That her strengths are yours to own don't, don't see her strengths as a threat to you. Her strengths were given as assets for you to, to put to good use. Here, we think about uh, a corporation, uh, a, a group, a workplace, where, where you have a manager. You have a leader. That a leader has to be able to work with people who are more skilled than him, who are more intelligent than him. He has to say, you know what? I'm not an expert in this area, but I have to hire someone who is, and he has to be able to trust them. That, that's, that's what's required for a manager to succeed, for a leader to succeed in the same way the husband has, by God, been given a woman who has gifts that are different than his. He can't see those gifts as a threat. Here, in some of the marital counseling, I've witnessed men who are married to women Everyone in the church knows them, and they say, 
this woman is more intelligent than her husband. And he's trying to put her in her place, saying, no, I am more intelligent than her. Like, You're the only one among any of your friends who thinks that. So stop fighting this battle, because it's a worthless battle, and see it as a strength for you and your family rather than as a weakness. Men, for some reason, can't think that way. We don't think that way so easily. So also those weaknesses of hers, those are yours to own. This is loving your own wife as you love your own body. So wives also, you think about the reminder here that they ought to respect their husband. Women are good at showing love, showing care, but they can do so even within a context of disrespect. And you think about how, mentioned it last week, was it, that to disrespect a man is like putting kryptonite on Superman, that it destroys them. And just as not loving a woman is her destruction, it's her kryptonite, that disrespecting a man is his kryptonite. And God knows these things because he made man and knows man. So he says, wives, show respect to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. So this is the unity expressed between husband and wife. Not two, but one. We have the second point, the union between Christ and the church. In verses 29 and 30, and in verse 32. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Also in verse 32, this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Here we have Christ's care for the church. We see that in verse 29, but nourishes and cherishes it. Here, Christ nourishes us by his word and spirit. He's given us his word. Jesus is the logos, he's the word. And he's promised his Holy Spirit. Here, we think back to verse 26, cleansing her by the washing of water with the word. You think about how Christ's word, the word of God, must have a significant part in your life. There must be a regular intake. And you think about how, how many instructions, how many standards, how much indoctrination is coming in from the world. The world is telling us its own message. We work in the world, we function in this world, but there must be for us a regular intake of God's word. If we're going to be able to combat the lies that the world offers. Because we're not getting any lies from God in his word. We have to think that way. We're not getting any lies. He is the one who is giving us the truth. And the only way we battle lies from the world is from the truth of God's word. We're being cleansed by the washing of water with the word. Christ also cherishes his church. Literally, it means to keep warm, to cherish. Here, us Minnesotans have some advantage. You think about when the temperatures drop far below zero. That if you, if you want to keep your members, right, if you want to keep your members, your fingers, your toes, your ears... It'd be wise to keep them warm. This is what Christ does. He cherishes us. He keeps them warm. Here, we're reminded that every part of the, of the body is valuable. This is from the perspective of member to member. 
The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. But you think also from the perspective of the head, the head who is Jesus. He doesn't say to the hand or that pinky toe or the pinky finger, I have no need of you. Every member is valuable. You realize Christ died on behalf of his people. He wouldn't say so easily, oh, that's just a pinky. That ring finger, all it does is it holds my ring. I don't need that. I don't have to wear these gloves in, in 50 below weather. Certainly God doesn't think that way. Christ does not think that way. Here, we think about what went wrong in the garden. We think about what went wrong in the garden. Here, Eve was dialoguing with the serpent. Adam was there. Adam hid in the garden, and then God says, uh, who told you you're naked? And his statement was, this woman that you gave to me, she gave me the fruit and I ate of it. And you think about how this is the first Adam, what he did that was wrong. We have in our Lord Jesus, uh, the one who gives us his perfect example. We have this mystery, it's profound. It's our union with Christ. Here, we think about what Jesus does. Adam's negative example. You have in Christ his perfect example. We, we see this principle manifested in Philemon 1.18. Here, the Apostle Paul is dealing with a runaway slave who has been converted. He's, he's, he's now in Christ, and he's writing a letter to his master. And he's saying, hey, uh, you want to see him as being useful now, useful to you, useful to me. And, uh, and he says the statement, Philemon 1.18, if he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. Meaning that if there's any debt that he has, any cost, the Apostle Paul is saying, I will pay it for him. You realize that this principle applies entirely in the case of the gospel. So Adam says, this woman that you gave me, she gave it to me and I ate of it. So what the man, first Adam is saying, hey, my sins, I put on her. But you realize that what Jesus says, he is the one who says, her sins charge to my account. I will pay them in full my life for hers. He who made he who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You realize that Jesus Christ, who is the last Adam, he is the one who fulfilled his role perfectly. There is a stark difference. Adam said, God, I blame you and I blame her. Jesus steps in there as the true husband says, her sins are paid for by me. Here we think about the benefit that we receive from Jesus. So this united to Christ, we're united to him by faith. That we become one with him, we have union with him by faith. Galatians 3.26, for all of you are sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And we think about how we benefit in many ways in being united to Christ. We read earlier from the larger catechism, uh, verse 83, 
that we enjoy the sense of God's love. Meaning that being united to Christ by faith, we come to understand God's love for us. How do we know that? Is because he sent his son to die on our behalf. That's how we know that. We have a peace of conscience, meaning that what Christ did on the cross was significant. It actually paid for the debt that I owe, that you owe. And because of that, we have peace of conscience. Christ's death paid the price to set you free. Then because of that, there's joy in the Holy Ghost. There's hope of glory that one day you will have glory because Jesus promised that he has prepared a place for you in heaven. And I ask you, are you trusting this Jesus who is God? He is the one who sets you free from the bondage to sin and to death. Jesus alone offers you the forgiveness of sins. He takes the sins of his bride, the church, upon himself. No other person, no other entity can do this. Are you trusting in him? Are you following him? And men, husbands, I ask you, are you following this Jesus, even in his perfect example, that of a bridegroom? That is in relation to you and your wife. That this is how we ought to love, even as Christ loved sacrificially for you and for me. So that's the union between Christ and the church. We have the third point, God's design for marital unity in verse 31. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now, this really is the heart of this passage, verses 28 to 33. This idea of unity, this idea of oneness, one flesh. In our culture, going back again to what we get wrong, in our culture, it seems like we get this entire thing wrong. Genesis 2.24, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother. We can't even get that right. Here, how common is it? You hear about uh, a man, 36 years old, and he's still living in his parents' basement. And, and we ask, what is he doing there? And, and oftentimes it's because uh, the dad is fed up and the mom says, okay, you, you will always have a place with us. When the dad is saying, hey, I had it with him like 10 years ago. When he was 26 or, or, or 18, you know, I had enough. He needs to get out. He, he's on his own. He, he, can, he can go live under the 35E bridge, right? But here, you think about how there's a failure to launch. There's a failure to, to see that this, this need to grow up. Fulfill the creation mandate. Be, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it, to rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every living thing that moves on the earth. That there's no desire to fulfill that, that uh, creation mandate. Subduing the earth is part of man's labor, part of his calling. But here, this, this man living in his parents' basement, right? he's not willing to, to do diligent work that God has called us to. He's not willing to labor. And it's not as if that's enough. Here, husbands often think, hey, I, I work, I provide for my family. And the last thing he does is uh, he walks to the door and he says, I'm home or I'm done, right? So, so he thinks I ought to be left alone to peace. He had to think about what his wife is doing. If his wife is at home and she's, she's cared for the children or she's, uh, she's prepared food, you know, 
she's had work too, right? She, she needs some interaction. And here, this is where the man has to have his understanding. Hey, God didn't merely say that we're called to labor and provide for our wife and our children. That, that's not, he's not done. It, here in our culture, men can't even do that, right? Here, you, you have this guy who's living in his parents' basement. He can't even do that one thing, but he's called to far more. It's not enough to be merely the financial provider. He must also be the godly example to his household. He must give godly instruction and guidance to his wife. This is the cleansing her with the washing of water uh, with the word. We see also in the beginning of Ephesians chapter 6 that he must raise his children with the discipline and instruction of the Lord. That, that he may not be the one giving all the instructions, right? Some of the instructions may come from the wife. Some of the instructions may come from teachers in their schools, but he's, his, he's responsible for everything that gets taught. Here, this Genesis 2.24, what it's telling us, we're reminded again, this idea of one in marriage, not two. He must hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. The world tries to tell you there's a 50-50 partnership. But this is not God's design. He says one flesh union. Don't think about a 50-50 partnership. You think about a one flesh union. You think about the 50-50 partnership. That's thinking for failure. That's thinking for when, when things fall apart, you get 50% and I get 50%. It's, it's thinking failure. God's design is one flesh. It's like getting married with, and we're talking here, young people, getting married with prenuptial. Is that, is that thinking failure? Is that thinking we're two rather than one? You think about can one be split? One can be split. It's the marriage covenant is broken by sexual immorality, uh, such as adultery. But here we, we think about how two people being split apart. Imagine you have two pieces of paper, you cover it with the best glue, you stick it together, you let it sit in the sun so it dries. Are you gonna be able to peel these two sheets of paper apart? Not, not without there being a whole lot of loss of both sheets of paper. And you think about divorce, tearing apart, tearing asunder, there will be loss, there will be tragedy, there will be pain. And that's just between the one that is made two again. That's not even talking about the result of the family and the children and those around them. Here we think about God's design for marital unity. That men, we have the tendency to think about ourselves. We must think about what's good for the wife. We must begin to think as a single unit of one rather than two. Think about those weaknesses. They're, they are yours to own. They belong to you. That you're, you're the one who is called to tend them. As Jesus tended to the weaknesses of his bride, the church. Her strengths are also yours. That they're your assets. Don't see them as a threat. Here we think about this leaving and cleaving. Here, it's a reminder to us as parents. As parents, 
We're going to train these children to leave. We're going to train, train them that they're going to leave the nest. Which means, children, at some point, you've got to leave the nest. Here, we think about what that means. Often this is difficult for mothers. The son gets married. Hey, uh, I, I need to talk to you. You come over to my house for dinner tonight. Oh, wait a minute. Uh, she, he has to check with his wife. He's a newlywed, right? I mean, hey, these are good principles we ought to have. Hey, I told you you're coming back. Well, wait a minute. You have to be able to let go because that's part of this leaving and cleaving is that we realize that there's a different family unit, right? So, hey, no, 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 no. You're still my son. Hey, he's still your son, but you know what? He's the head of his household, right? He's united to his wife. This means that parents, there must be a willingness to let go of these children, right? This is difficult, especially from an Eastern perspective, right? This idea, no, no, no. Uh, that daughter-in-law has, has now come under my authority. No, 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 no. <laughs> that's not under your threats. That's with your, your son, right? Your son, your daughter. This is why they're called to leave. The trouble. We got to prepare our hearts, prepare our minds to let go of these children. We got to pray. They're going to make mistakes. They're going to sin. You're right. That's part of our duty to pray for them. This is why the older parents talk about how oh, little children have little children problems. Big children have big children problems. The problems uh, don't necessarily become less. They become greater. Here, we think about Christ's perfect example for us. As our Father, He is the one who gives us good guidance. Here we think also, this idea of being one. If you can walk away with one thing, think that you are one. That in Christ, you are one with Him, united to Him by faith. That with your spouse, that He has given you, He has given you a spouse in His wisdom. See to it that no... It's not that you made the bad choice. God provided for you. We must see the good in what he's provided. May you cherish your wife. May you nourish her by, by God's word. May we go to our God together in prayer. Our Lord God, we thank you, Father.